Well, in her new book, Hidden History, Lynn Rainville travels through the forgotten African-American cemeteries of central Virginia to recover information crucial to the stories of the black families who lived and worked here for more than 200 years. The subjects of her research are not statesmen or plantation elites. They are hidden residents, people who are typically underrepresented in historical research, but whose stories are essential for a complete understanding of our past. Rainville studied above-ground funerary remains in more than 150 historic African-American cemeteries in Virginia to provide an overview of mortuary and funerary practices from the late 18th century to the end of the 20th. Combining historical, anthropological, and archeological perspectives, she analyzes documents such as wills, obituaries, and letters, as well as gravestones and gravesite offerings. Rainville's findings shed light on family genealogies, on the rise and fall of segregation, and on attitudes toward religion and death. As many of these cemeteries are either endangered or already destroyed, the book and this talk will include a discussion about the challenges of preservation and how Virginians may visit and help preserve these valuable cultural assets. Lynn Rainville is a research professor in the humanities and the founding director of the Tusculum Institute for Local History located at Sweetbriar College. Although her PhD is in Near Eastern archeology, span and Near Eastern in this case does not mean like the Tidewater of Virginia, but <laughs> the other Near East. Um, she has spent the last decade studying these historic African-American cemeteries, documenting historic segregated schools, and conducting oral interviews with descendants of enslaved communities. She's also hard at work documenting all the monuments around the state that memorialize World War I and is a member of Virginia's World War I Centennial Committee. Lynn's most recent book is titled Hidden History, African-American Cemeteries in Central Virginia, and that's the subject of her talk today. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome for Lynn Rainville. Well, welcome, very, uh, welcome today, and thank you for coming on what is an absolutely lovely day. So what I want to do in today's talk is kind of take you through the process of locating old cemeteries, what you do when you find them, why they're important, and what you can learn from them. So very much kind of a guidebook to these historic sacred sites. And I should say as a caveat, a lot of the rationale behind finding old cemeteries, while my research is focused on African-American cemeteries, very often it pertains to uh, white cemeteries and other cemeteries of various backgrounds. But in terms of my research, I focused on the Virginian Piedmont, uh, specifically areas in central Virginia, Amherst County, Albemarle County, Nelson County. Uh, these were very scientifically chosen. It has to do with where I lived and the counties I commuted through to go to work. <laughs> so um, it means that if you're asking me about counties that are not on that route, uh, I'm going to take a really good guess. Um, but within those counties, and most, uh, most of them are in Albemarle and Amherst counties, uh, that's where the 150 cemeteries are located that I visited and studied for this research. Um, 
And uh, on this ma map in the lower right-hand corner, don't worry, there is not going to be a quiz, but the numbers that you're looking at, the four digits, this would be the founding of these counties by European Americans. And this is where I would also point out that if your interests are in Native American burial grounds, um, those, of course, date back tens of thousands of years uh, in Virginia. And those were not a focus of my research. But of course, in this region, there are also hundreds and hundreds of unmarked Native burials as well. So the chronology, cemeteries, one of the most important things about cemeteries is that they function as outdoor museums. So while they are obviously a place of personal mourning and loss, more broadly, and when you study them more holistically and study dozens of cemeteries, not just your own family cemetery, you would quickly come to realize that these cemeteries, you can read the gravestones as, uh, that, and they provide insight into local history. It's like reading not just family stories, but community stories. And then more broadly, these stories of, uh, in my case, the story of race in Virginia over the last 200 years and racial relations. Um, and so towards this end, when I was selecting cemeteries to study, I always tried to look at gravestones that were distributed in different eras. Um, of course, most notably the antebellum era, which includes enslaved communities, but also free blacks. Um, then the postbellum era and into Reconstruction, the Jim Crow era, uh, and then finally the era of migration for a lot of African American families, um, and then continued segregation. And I was reminding uh, folks, we were uh, having lunch just before this, and reminding everyone that a cemetery, once a cemetery is segregated, so for example, if it were segregated for the last 150 years, you don't desegregate a cemetery. So that means that that always stays as an, uh, a representation of a past era. You can integrate a cemetery moving forwards, but it stays there. Um, and in the case of a lot of public cemeteries in Virginia, it stays there as a demarcation between white and black areas in public <laughs> cemeteries. So as I promised, I wanted to take you through some of the steps using some examples from my research of how you can locate these cemeteries, because this is usually one of the most common questions that I get. And again, some of the tools for finding historic cemeteries would apply to any old cemetery, like looking on old maps, asking people, older members of the community, if they remember ask, looking, uh, asking a funeral home or a church. But in the case of African-American cemeteries, especially 19th century African-American cemeteries, sometimes these sites have been overgrown and forgotten. And this example on the left-hand side, um, I am standing in the middle of a thicket. Um, somehow, it's not just that cemeteries are overgrown, somehow they are always overgrown with things that are prickly. I don't know what it is about the state of Virginia and prickly things. Um, so I have fought my way into the middle of a thicket, and I am actually standing next to the gravestones. And then looking out, those are two of my students from Sweetbar who are basically wondering if they're getting paid enough to actually come in and join me. Um, and this is a cemetery uh, down at Alta Vista, uh, in Alta Vista at a site called Avoca. This is one of the Lynch family homes. The it was called the Green Level Plantation. And this cemetery, it's a slave cemetery. It's located about half a mile away from the, the old big house. This is a common pattern with slave cemeteries, that they're located a quarter to a half mile away from the plantation house. And very often, the, the plantation house will have a, a, the cemetery for the plantation owners much closer to the plantation house. So if you're looking for the slave cemetery, you have to go out further. 
And in this case, what's happened in between the time of the founding of the plantation and the slave cemetery uh, is that the railroad went through in the 1850s and 60s. So now this slave cemetery, you drive on a road, you go across the railroad tracks, and then you get to a big empty field, and in the middle of the field is this thicket. This is one of the clues for an old cemetery, and again, it, it could be a black or a white cemetery, but if you have a field that is otherwise being, uh, you know, crops are being planted, livestock's grazing, and then you have this suspicious uh, cluster of trees or bushes or something that for some reason hasn't been taken down at some point, you always want to check that out first. So we went and investigated, and we found this pattern on the right-hand side, which, if you stop and think about it for a moment, um, is very suspicious and not at all what we were expecting to see. So each of the orange, fla orange flags, we've numbered each stone, um, so we, we're the ones who added the flags. Um, and of course, in a cemetery, while there are lots of different patterns, you always expect there to be spaces in between the stones because you need room for the bodies. In this case, all the stones are clustered together. And as it turns out, they were clustered together under two different trees on opposite sides of this thicket. And when I asked, a little bit more and looked into some oral histories, I was told that back in the 1950s, a farmer who was grazing his cattle in this area was disturbed because his cattle kept tripping over gravestones. So he picked up the gravestones and moved them to either side to help his cows. Um, and this is not the only time that I've um, had people tell me that this has happened, although this, this was one of the more noticeable end results uh, because no one ever moved the stones back. Um, and this is, of course, what we would want to avoid. Um, and one of the reasons why I encourage people, uh, you don't have to have a special training or I'll give you a badge if you want it, but I, I would encourage anyone to um, go back in your local communities and help locate these old sites so that they can be protected proactively before stones are moved. So in addition to these suspicious thickets or clusters of trees in the middle of otherwise plowed fields, uh, another pattern, if you're going to try to find old 19th or even early 20th century cemeteries, would be to look for the broader cultural context. And by that I mean look for an old black school, look for old black churches. This is an example uh, in Almoral County, the Rose Hill School, uh, which has been closed for many decades. It, it closed around the time of integration. It was a, formerly a segregated African-American school. And then on the right-hand side, the Rose Hill Church. That was actually founded back in the 1880s, and this is a, a much more recent building. And it's an important thing to realize that if you're looking for a 19th century cemetery and you get to a site like I did and you see this, what is clearly a, a 20th century uh, church made out of uh, concrete blocks, and you think, oh, this, this can't be the right place, that, of course, the wooden churches burned a lot and had all sorts of different troubles. So that in and of itself doesn't mean that you're not going to find a really old and wonderful cemetery nearby. And indeed, this site had a cemetery with about 170 burials dating uh, to the 19th century. The other pattern, especially for slave cemeteries, uh, is the one that I was describing before. This map, this is an aerial view from Google Maps of Sweetbriar. As many of you probably realize, uh, Sweetbriar College was formerly a plantation. The college was founded in a, the will of a woman who died in 1900, and she herself was the daughter of a slave owner who had arrived from Vermont in 1811. So this today, our campus is really the, the very center area where the yellow, um, the yellow square is. 
But in the lower left-hand corner, that red circle, that would be the plantation owner cemetery, where, for example, Elijah Fletcher and her daughter Indiana are buried. Indiana's the woman who founded Sweetbriar College. But the red triangle is where the slave cemetery is located. We know from records that in 1860, right after Elijah died, um, as his estate was being appraised, he owned over 145 individuals. And that slave cemetery has about 60 remaining burials today. So this is the pattern, especially for some, we still have you know, so many of the old 19th century plantations that are still standing. And while all the land may not still be intact, um, you can ignore modern day land boundaries and look for this sort of pattern if you're looking for an old antebellum African-American cemetery. And I should note that another factor here is that both of these cemeteries, white and black, are located on hilltops. It is a very common pattern to put uh, any cemetery, even to this day, on a hilltop for a variety of reasons, both symbolic but also practical. You want to avoid the water table when you bury the dead, and hilltop locations are one way to ensure that. Well, if all else has failed and you haven't found the cemetery on a map and you don't have this pattern to look for, as I mentioned before, one of the most valuable assets would be community members. And I was very fortunate in my work, um, at least 30% of my leads came from people in the community. And it can start with the vaguest of rumors. And in this particular instance, this was a librarian, a then librarian at the University of Virginia. She wasn't from Virginia. She had only been in her house for a couple years. But someone had told her in the neighborhood that they thought there was an old black cemetery in her backyard. Keeping in mind, her backyard was many acres. So that didn't really narrow it down. And she'd always been curious. And you, know, you, you do this work, and very quickly, you become the cemetery lady and the person that everybody calls when they're looking for these things. So she called me up uh, and asked if I would come look for it. And that was early on. Now I've been doing this for 15 years. That was probably the second or third year. And I was very confident that I, was, you know, I had some special gift to find these things. And I said, of course I will. So I go to her house, and I spend an hour or two with her two German shepherds following me the whole time, trying to help me. And I find absolutely nothing. And then I go back, and she said, well, there's another thing that my neighbors have been telling me, and that's that Mr. Hearns, the man in the center, uh, William Hearns, he's lived here a really long time, so maybe he knows. Well, so when I went to talk to Mr. Hearns, it turns out not only did he know, but it was his family cemetery. And so Mr. Hearns came back with me, um, and we traipsed around, and in that case, it only took about an hour. And we were about to give up because we were going over, uh, this picture on the left only gives you a small sense. This wasn't like hiking on a trail. There was fallen trees and groundhog uh, pits. And uh, finally, just as we were about to give up, the sun started setting, and that far picture of the gravestone, it was as the sun was setting that it lit up one of these stones. Um, and as is very often the case in these old 19th century cemeteries, most of the stones looked like this one. They were field stones, regularly occurring stones that did not have an inscription on it. So in other words, it wasn't that we were looking for tall white obelisks in the woods that were, would be easy to find. And Mr. Hearns, when we found this site, um, there were 12 burials here. And the only burial that had an inscription that we could read was for a little girl named Marion. And when I read it out loud, because you had to crunch down, it was one of those small metal markers, um, and read the name out loud, he said that that was his sister, and that her burial back in the 1920s, when she was very young, was the last time that he had been in this cemetery, because after his, his uh, sister was buried, he grew up, 
he went into the military. He left Virginia for a series of decades. And by the time he came back, his grandmother had sold the land and the home that he had grown up in. And then he was told incorrectly by some of the white neighbors that now that his family didn't own the property, that it would be illegal for him. He'd be trespassing if he went back to visit the cemetery. And to make matters worse, in the 1970s, um, as he got older, he approached a lawyer about trying to get access to the site. And she told him, also incorrectly, that if he would pay her, she would try to work the system for him. Um, so my, his visit with me was actually the first time that he had come back to the site. Um, and this tells us so many things about these cemeteries, um, but the two that I'll focus on is first, the Virginia statutes um, provide access to any descendant uh, to their cemetery. You can even, uh, what's his face, Eric Trump, Donald Trump's son who owns a vineyard in Albemarle, which is on land that's former plantation land, could not deny someone access to a family cemetery if there were one on his land. Um, and that second, um, these oral traditions um, are so very important, um, both that he could help me identify who this girl was, because as many of you would realize, that since this little girl died in the 20s, she wasn't on the census anywhere. She was born after the 1910 census, um, I'm sorry, after the 1920 census, and she died before 1930. Um, and this is just some of the insights that we get from these cemeteries, and another reason why it's very important to proactively locate them and um, produce maps so that other people know where these burials are located. Well, so sometimes it's very hard to locate these cemeteries, and other times they're really hidden in plain sight. Um, some of you might recognize in the lower right-hand corner, okay, so I haven't, I haven't indicated what it is, I've indicated the important stuff. The other green thing is Scott Stadium. That's the University of Virginia football stadium. So that is located, for those of you who have not been to Scott Stadium, oh, it must hold 120,000 people. It's located a stone's throw away from the lawn, the rotunda, the center of campus. And in turn, a stone's throw away from that uh, football stadium, first if we look at the Maury Plantation, that, little, that arrow is pointing to a house that's still standing in the upper left-hand corner. That is located in what is today faculty housing, um, at University of Virginia, right off Fontaine Avenue. Uh, if you're going to the football games, you probably drive by it. And that, in turn, was a 19th century plantation owned by the Maury family. Well, what this map doesn't show any longer is that the Maury family had their own cemetery um, right out, not a couple hundred yards away from that plantation house. And when they widened the road, Fontaine Avenue, the White family decided they would relocate their cemetery a little ways away. So their cemetery's gone, but if it were still there, it would fit the pattern that I described before. You have the plantation house or the big house, you have the white cemetery, and then roughly a quarter to a half mile away is the slave cemetery. Now in this case, because University of Virginia is in every nook and cranny um, in this neighborhood today, the slave cemetery, which I've uh, outlined in the center of those buildings, those buildings are dorms. And the reason why those dorms are in that kind of funny shape, bracketing that empty, what looks like a driveway, is because the driveway is the location of dozens and dozens of enslaved burials. These were the enslaved individuals who worked at uh, the Maury Plantation. And the extra twist to this story is that when I went to look for this site, again, it was one of those, he said, she said, someone said, oh, Lynn, you've got a, you, you found the UVA slave cemetery, right? And at the time, I myself didn't live more than three quarters of a mile from here. And I tromped over with my dog, and it took me an hour and a half 
Um, and that's because, well, first off, someone told me it was in the wrong place. And then when I got there and was asking students, staff, people who worked in the cafeteria, no one had any idea what I was talking about, even though they walk through it and around the cemetery constantly. There are no surviving stones, so that does make it difficult. Um, they know that it's a burial site uh, when they went to build the dorms, and it was in 1984 that they brought in some archaeologists to survey where the burials were. But at the time, they decided um, they know where the burials are, but they didn't remark them with any stones. So people can be forgiven for not necessarily recognizing it, but UVA did try uh, to mark it with a sign, but the only problem is it's this marker on the left-hand side is the marker, that the plaque in the center of the stone wall. And that's that stone wall, it might be hard to see from my photograph, but it, it's a, a resting spot on a very, very steep staircase that goes up a hill. And so what everybody was doing was they would, you would get up halfway on the stairs and you would sit on the bench. And of course, if you sit on it, you can't see, there's no way you're gonna read the plaque. The plaque is below your waist level um, and, and not where you would be looking. I'll come back to this theme a little bit later about marking these sites with signs that jump out at people that you don't have to go on a treasure hunt for. Um, and if you can't read it in the lower left-hand corner, the inscription is, um, this area contains unmarked graves believed to be those of the slaves of the Mori family, owners of uh, Piedmont in the 19th century and then University of Virginia 1984. Another quick example before I move on in plain sight, I don't know if anyone recognizes this site. This is the slave cemetery at Monticello. And as any of you know who have visited Monticello um, for you know, a World Heritage Site, uh, the, sl the slave cemetery they've located so far, which I'm sure is just one of many, uh, is located in the middle of the parking lot. Um, and this was an unfortunate, it was relocated decades ago after they had already put in the parking lot. So if you're visiting Monticello, make sure um, before, after you leave, as you're going to your car that you stop. Now they have a very nice landscaped um, walkway that takes you to the cemetery. So you found a cemetery. And now, you, but in part, to find the cemetery, you do have to know what these gravestones might look like. And there's a tremendous amount of variability in these historic African-American gravestones. This is one of the reasons why they're so very interesting, that it's not just a testament to attitudes towards death or religious beliefs. It's also a testament to the artistry of these communities over the last 200 years. This is a stone, um, it, it is carved, I know it's hard to see in my photograph, uh, it says Betsy. This is a stone for an enslaved woman on a plantation. And although I don't have time today to talk about all of the stone variability, um, but I'm happy to answer questions afterwards, uh, from the left to right, I, I do wanna highlight that on the left-hand side, these little metal markers, they were the bane of my existence when I started this project because I didn't realize what they were. Um, and most of the cemeteries I visited initially had dozens and dozens of these uninscribed stones, locally available field stones. And then I would get to these metal markers and all of a sudden I thought I could read something. I was pretty sure there were numbers on it. And so the first couple dozen of these that I found, I assiduously, I wrote down all those numbers at, at great effort because they can be hard to read. I will tell you if you do this, don't bother. That's the patent number. <laughs> These markers, which were invented around the turn of the 20, early 20th century, these are used by funeral homes. To this day, um, if I'd known a little bit more about modern day funerary practices, I could have cut to the chase. Um, and these are provided usually by the funeral home. They're meant to be temporary, 
before you buy whatever the gravestone's gonna be. But in many, many cases, especially with uh, poorer families or families that move soon after a death, they never get around to replacing the marker. So the marker remains. And as you can tell from this photo, unfortunately these markers, because they're meant to be temporary, usually the inscription is either on a piece of paper, under glass, sometimes it's little metal letters that fall out. It's like a game of Scrabble. You get to one of these and you see these little um, letters strewn that have fallen out down below. Um, and then you have to figure out where they go. Uh, but that number, that's not a helpful number. So otherwise, these stones, for example, the obelisks in the center, these are hand-carved stones. They also do not have inscriptions. They're late 19th century burials. Um, the anthropomorphic image in the center, a beautiful carving. Um, and then the marble stone, it says Hagah, faithful servant. This is, it's maybe hard to tell the scale. That's an old-fashioned GPS uh, on the, right, the lower right-hand corner for scale, which is roughly five times the size of an iPhone. Um, and, but this small marble marker was in the plot of a white family who owned a, a, girl, a school for girls in the 19th century in Charlottesville. And in this plot, this is in the, one of the old public cemeteries in Charlottesville, you have the members of the Mead family, and then you have this one stone. And as you'll notice, there's no last name given for Hagah, even though when I did census work, it turns out that she died decades after the end of slavery. She did have a last name, she did have a family, and yet she's buried by herself um, in the plot with the white family. And so that's another issue of um, basically paternalism. Um, when uh, African-Americans who were formerly enslaved are sometimes uh, in death buried in a white family plot. And while there are arguably pros and cons to this, one of the biggest drawbacks or negatives is that now it's very hard to figure out the rest of her family, of her own family, and where they're buried. They're definitely not buried in this white cemetery. And then the last image, this is a more contemporary stone in a modern day African-American cemetery, a beautifully carved granite stone with an urn in the center. This is a close-up of the one of the funeral home markers. The only thing I can tell you is if you find them is to, I mean, look really, really carefully. Uh, I mean, at first glance, they often look like they're completely illegible. In this case, it is. Uh, this is someone who died in 1917, so this crazy little piece of paper under a piece of glass, exposed to the elements all year round, has survived almost 100 years, um, but I'm sure that it's not gonna make it all, all that much longer, um, so please do record inscriptions if you find any of these. Um, as I mentioned, in slave graveyards, very often the stones are not inscribed, but in about 5% of the cases, they are. They can be hard to read. Um, this one says Callie or Sally. It's, it's more likely to be Callie S, period. And then the second line, which is even harder to read, says July, and it's either 10th or 16th, and 1865. So in other words, this woman died just a couple months after the end of the Civil War. She's buried, this location is on a plantation cemetery in Albemarle. And I do always like to remind people that um, if someone is enslaved, if, if an enslaved person lives after emancipation, say they die in 1890, they still might decide to be buried on a slave cemetery, even though of course they are no longer enslaved, because their spouse might be buried there, or their grandparents, or their parents, or their children. Um, so slave cemeteries, it's not that people stop burying in a slave cemetery in 1865 along with freedom, it's very much uh, has to do with the family connections and decisions of which family members to bury together. 
Um, slave gravestones are, can be remarkable, remarkably variable in their shape and size. So from the left-hand side, you'll notice this is a pattern we saw before, um, like gritting out the stone for, before carving the inscription. Uh, in the middle is actually a fascinating inscription that I, I wish I could fully interpret. It has a combination of geometric forms and letters. Um, and then finally, on the right-hand side, while it's not inscribed, it has been shaped into that um, curved obelisk shape. And then other times, these are slightly later stones in uh, uh, Reconstruction era cemeteries and early black uh, churches found in the 1870s. Um, the uh, dove, uh, a common mortuary symbol, rosettes, and then the heart itself. Uh, you'll notice in pretty much all American cemeteries in the 20th century is when you start getting these euphemistic inscriptions, the at rest, sleeping, sleeping with Jesus, um, you know, something other than that they are dead or buried. Um, and then on the right-hand side, I always, uh, well, I know it, it sometimes with Boy Scout troops or Girl Scout troops, uh, it can be a project to clean up a cemetery. Um, in the case of historic African-American cemeteries, you do have to be careful what you're cleaning exactly. Um, in this case, these are above-ground grave offerings. This, this is not junk or trash or mistakenly placed here. Um, these are all deliberately from the, the crockery, the, the plate, um, uh, the ceramic fowl, all of these things are, are deliberately placed on top of the grave. So you, you do have to be careful what you clean. And then sometimes the gravestones aren't stones at all, but they're um, trees or something planted, which of course are the hardest from an anthropologist or an archeologist perspective. This makes it very hard to reconstruct who planted it and why. Um, but on the left-hand side, the pine tree that's planted right next to the cross this was the reason why I know this is because I did oral interviews with uh, neighbors. This was planted in honor of someone's father who died. Um, then in the center, this is actually, I think it might even be a rose bush that was deliberately planted in front of a stone and obviously is taking over, um, which is why I also encourage people when you're looking at old cemeteries uh, and if you see, you know, rose bush, any hedge, um, to always kind of get down and look in the middle of it and see if there's something there. Usually planted bushes in cemeteries started out like this, as an innocent, small little planting, and then they just took over. And then last but not least on the far right, this is one of those metal markers I was mentioning with the little letters that slide, half of which have fallen out. And then someone has taken a tree stump and they've stuck it because the metal marker in turn fell off of its base, they combined the metal marker with a tree stump and stuck them together. So all different ways to do this. And sometimes it's even more obscure. Uh, here on the left-hand side, you have one of these metal markers. In this case, you can clearly see the glass is broken, and this piece of paper was not uh, legible at all. Um, but in addition, someone's been planting uh, tulips, daffodils, and then, of course, the colorful flowers are fake. But, you know, I was never a fan of plastic flowers before I started this project, because when all else fails, that plastic's going to be there for about another thousand years. So even if nothing else is left, if you put those plastic flowers and you secure them in the ground, that's going to tell people there's a burial there. And then on the right-hand side, um, uh, in most cases, especially in the past, when people are buried um, before modern-day restrictions on vaults and all sorts of crazy things, um, if you're buried in basically a wooden box, you and the box will decay with time, and that means it's absolutely part of the natural process of events, you will, a depression will occur. And oddly enough, in American culture, um, sometime by the mid to late 20th century, this became um, 
depressions in cemeteries became an eyesore. And so modern day cemeteries require all sorts of circumventions to make sure that depressions don't occur. But in any old cemetery, it's, since it's a, a natural process, you'll find depressions. And this sometimes is your guide for a burial location that where the stone is no longer remaining or the, the stone was perhaps something wood, something that didn't preserve at all. And the very best time to find these depressions is in the fall because the leaves will differentially settle into these depressions or right after a snowfall. So you found your cemetery, you uh, recorded some of the stones, and now what is it that you can learn from these gravestones? Well, as any genealogist will know, cemeteries, of course, contain information about births and deaths, but far more than that, the distribution or the placement of stones within a cemetery very often gives you kind of the, the real estate of the dead. It, it helps you figure out connections among individuals, whether they're neighbors or actual kin. Um, so here, just something as simple as the nickname for this individual, Papa. Um, if you have really sharp eyes, you'll notice what I did not notice when I was taking this picture, which is that there's a gecko in the upper left-hand corner. One of the things that happens to me when I, I take these pictures, because I tend to go into a, a very particular frame of mind when I'm uh, recording cemeteries, uh, is that I'm really not paying attention to anything other than trying to get the photographs. And then afterwards, I'll look at the pictures, and half the time, um, I can see that there's poison ivy growing, there are ticks, there's been a snake once or twice that I absolutely did not notice at the time, which is probably for the best. Um, and then in other cases, it's just plain remarkable. Um, this woman, Ruth Fitch, uh, mother of, of 19 children, um, and sure enough, in and around her burial are most of those 19 children and, of course, subsequent generations. Um, and in other cases, cemeteries and the epitaphs can tell us about people's occupations, their status, um, and in the case of formerly enslaved individuals, it can be um, a very rare link to where people were enslaved. So on the left-hand side, Charles Seller, um, he died in 1917, but when you do the math from his epitaph, it's clear that he was born enslaved. This stone is located in a neighborhood burial ground, but that is near to a plantation called uh, Estuteville. And the inscription reads, he spent his life of about 80 years in faithful service in the family of Estuteville. You can probably guess who paid for this stone. Um, and on the right-hand side, if those of you who were here a couple weeks ago when Barclay Reeves spoke, who in turn is descended from Thomas Walker of Castle Hill in Albemarle, well, a week or two ago, one of the descendants of the enslaved community um, is doing a film about his family, and this is one of his descendants, Colin Bird. Colin was also enslaved, and that inscription is uh, much harder to read, um, but it says, uh, after his name and his death, well done, good and faithful servant. Um, and this is the only inscribed gravestone in that slave cemetery associated with Castle Hill. So these slave graveyards um, can be very, very informative. And as any of you know who have ever tried to do African-American uh, genealogy for individuals who were born prior to freedom, if they had been enslaved, you'll know that it's very hard to make the connection from the 1870 census to where people were enslaved and their full names. So another piece of information is, of course, military service. Um, the government does provide gravestones um, free of charge to individuals who served in our armed forces. Um, and here I have two World War I gravestones um, that are not, um, that are 
I've picked World War I for a particular reason. Um, these are both African-American veterans, um, one in Louisa County, one in Albemarle County. Um, and sometimes these stones uh, give information about the unit that a person served in, um, which is otherwise very hard to obtain because unfortunately a lot of the World War I service records burned in a fire back in the 1970s um, where they were being stored. And this is where I do a very quick plug um, for my newest project, uh, which is based on these gravestones uh, of military veterans, and it's uh, a study of World War I memorials. Not just gravestones, but also um, statues, plaques, bridges, gymnasiums, in honor of the Virginians who served in World War I. So while I'm, of course, very... Uh, I very much enjoy studying cemeteries, being in cemeteries. I would be remiss um, if I didn't uh, conclude by talking about what is not in the cemetery. What, if, what else would we like to know about African-American funerary rituals? Um, well, one of the places to look is in 19th century art. Um, in this uh, lithograph, uh, individuals are, there's a coffin that you can just see the, the end of in the wagon, and they're heading to the funeral. And in an even richer scene, um, this is an 1860 painting by a British man who was visiting in New Orleans. And I, I, I do have to emphasize that this then is, of course, a white perspective on a slave funeral. Um, but because we have so few photographs or paintings or depictions of black funerals in the antebellum period, it's still very valuable to analyze. Um, and because it's kind of a, well, there's actually a lot going on in this picture, I'll, I'll just summarize by saying you can see the coffin um, being lowered into the ground in the bottom corner. An African-American preacher sang the service, and this is significant because if you only read some of the, the laws and statutes of the time, you'll learn that, um, that at African-American church services, uh, usually a white preacher had to be present, um, and this was because of the fear of slave revolts. Um, so it's actually fascinating to see, obviously, an African-American preacher doing the service by himself. You'll see mourners, and you'll notice the, the African-American mourners, those, there's two uh, levels of mourners. One are most likely house servants, um, well-dressed, enslaved individuals. And by this, I'm not in any way trying to imply that slavery was not a horrible institution, but simply that their status within the household required them to have a different level of uh, dress, um, as opposed to some of the other individuals who are probably the field hands. And then if you look very closely in the woods, you'll see a white couple holding hands. Those would be the owners of the plantation. So again, it's a very fascinating window into, from one person's perspective, of what a funeral might have looked like during the antebellum period. And although I will not go through all these um, uh, today, uh, in my book, then I talk about the other aspects, uh, not just then um, the wake, the burial itself, the funeral and the period of mourning and memorial after um, the burial of an individual. Well, unfortunately, as I started this talk, um, many of these sites are at risk. It's one of the reasons why I studied so many cemeteries and, and kept studying them, um, because it, it got to the point where I, I, it was very hard to say no to someone who called and said, well, I think there might be an old black cemetery. Can you help? Although I will say I've gotten better at saying no. <laughs> it's just in case you're thinking of asking me after this talk. Um, but uh, it, it is very hard to say no. And of course, there are, fortunately, lots of resources, um, not least of which would be the Department of Historic Resources right here in Richmond to help uh, family members or interested members of the community in how to protect these sites. 
Um, and normally this is where I show a handful of slides of all my trials and tribulations of trying to protect cemeteries from developments, buildings, uh, farmers with cows, you know, kind of go down the list. But I have to say, being here in Richmond, um, it, it really would have been um, remiss of me if I didn't just highlight some of the amazing preservation projects that are ongoing in your community, um, which I have to say right now, I personally have nothing to do with. I wish I could take credit, but I can't other than putting up a picture. Um, so these are not my projects, um, but there are lots of wonderful efforts. Richmond, actually, in terms of communities that I know in the state, um, believe it or not, despite all the, I know there's some, there are pros and cons around some of your cemeteries here, your historic black cemeteries, you're still leading the way in, in a lot of preservation efforts. And this is one remarkable uh, project, the East End Cemetery Cleanup and Restoration Group. And in the lower right-hand corner, I have um, their website. Um, this is a local uh, effort, a, a day recently when they were working to restore the cemetery. Tomorrow night, um, if you like to do more than one cemetery lecture a week. Um, tomorrow night in the Plains in Virginia, there is a lecture uh, and a, a, a film showing of Meet Me in the Bottom, which is by a local professor at VCU um, who's been studying and uh, working on this documentary for a long time about the African burial ground here in Richmond, which has a tremendous amount of um, dispute and controversy around. And then VCU in a separate project, um, there's also a website, again, the URL's at the bottom, um, that documents both black and white cemeteries. Um, and if you were to click onto this site, you could look at pictures of more than a dozen cemeteries, historic cemeteries. So lots of really great work. And the reason why this is so important is if you do not proactively know where these sites are located, um, Somewhat often, uh, as new construction comes, this isn't you know, an anti-development speech, it's simply that if you are building new buildings and you do not realize there is a cemetery there, usually by the time you figure it out, it's too late. So in this particular example, now back in Albemarle County, um, you can see in the background the houses going up. This was, uh, these were houses, a, a developer bought a planta land that used to be associated with a plantation. Um, and they started building, and they had, of course, a site plan, a very complicated site plan for where they would build. And years into this process, um, they realized as they were building these houses that in the center, if you look carefully, that white stuff, that's snow. This is the pattern I, I was talking about where leaves will uh, pattern in the bottom of a depression, and so will snow. Those are both burials, and if you look really closely, you'll see at the head of them is one of them has a stone and one of them has one of those rusted metal markers. This was an old black cemetery. It was uh, predominantly the Lewis family from the early 20th century. So these are not, this is not a slave burial ground. This is an early 20th century African-American cemetery, but the descendants had moved away um, around World War II, so there was no one left in the community to you know, kind of raise a hand when this developer went in and say, wait, you need to check, or have you found the cemetery yet? Instead, they found it after they had started construction. And the short version of the story is after more than a year or two of myself and many other community members initially fighting to keep the cemetery intact and in situ, it became obvious that if we'd left it there, um, it was basically going to erode out. Um, and it was going, it, the context, because of where they were gonna build the houses, it was basically gonna become like someone's backyard. So instead, um, and after contacting descendants, we made the very difficult decision to have the cemetery moved, um, which is possible, uh, I mean, that's one of the options when, for example, VDOT puts a road through an old site. 
And so these burials were all moved. They were relocated by an archaeologist, and then a funeral home moved the burials to another historic African-American family cemetery that was about half a mile away. But personally, I would rather see these things not moved if possible, because when you move them, even if you try to do it as respectfully as possible, you've lost that sense of the original community and where the community was located. Um, so ideal not to move them. And as I mentioned, towards that end, it helps. This on the right-hand side, this is a church cemetery located in a very rural place that's far from the location of the church, the Rose Hill Church. It connects with the slides I showed you earlier. But this is a quarter of a mile away from the church. And again, it took me acting on tips quite a while to find the church. And it did involve hunting dogs that were loose and hunters themselves. So after all of this effort, um, I worked with the church to put up a sign so that at least people knew what the site was when they found it, or that it was a site. So in closing in, the, in this day and age, um, what I decided to do with this information that I had collected is I created a website um, so that, and it, it was very much geared towards so that families could locate old uh, burial grounds. And I should say in this day and age, the modern day equivalent is findagrave.com, which has hundreds of millions of gravestones in it. Um, but at the time, that information was not readily available. And so I set up this website um, with a list of cemeteries that I'd studied. You click on the cemetery, you get a description of of who's buried in the cemetery or how large it is, and then on each stone you can click and get biographical information about the person buried there. Um, and at the very least, um, again, if, if you have some spare time in the next couple weeks, it's a great time to find old cemeteries because all the green, all the foliage is dying off. Um, and as you find it, taking photographs of these stones is so important because they do erode with time. So for example, these photos, some of these photos are already a decade old. And when you go back to these sites now, you can read the stone off the, off the photo, but you can't read it in person. And of course, if we don't share this information um, with people who are younger than most of us, um, even if all of us really care about cemeteries and want to save them, if we don't teach the next generation why they should care about cemeteries and why they should visit cemeteries and learn from cemeteries, um, then I feel that my job is not done. So I work with um, professors at the University of Virginia with their students who are getting degrees in education, who are gonna go off into the trenches in the K through 12 classrooms um, and teach them how to integrate cemeteries and what we can learn from cemeteries into social studies, sciences, um, math, uh, humanities. Uh, th there's everything from poetry in a cemetery. You can obviously calculate birth and death dates until you're blue in the face. Whether you wanna use a new math or not, um, it can take up a lot of time. Um, and for those of you who are uh, socially media savvy, um, I do try to share this information in a variety of sources um, through uh, videos. Uh, for a long time, I had a blog that was a gravestone of the week to try to, again, encourage people that these cemeteries are more than just a site of sadness, but they also are, this, uh, are an outdoor museum of cultural traditions. Pinterest not just for crocheted animals. Um, you, I have a collection of gravestones from slave cemeteries, in part to try to reach out to community members to help me interpret what these symbols mean. Um, Facebook page. Um, and then Instagram, and okay, full disclosure, I don't do Instagram, but other people do. And if you are interested in cemeteries, Instagram, which is a photo sharing site, is a great way to share photographs and raise awareness about these sites. And if this, whoops. Well, that's strange. Um, well, if that hadn't been enough for you, um, huh, this thing does not 
Well, I will leave it here, but the last slide was, um, now it's really not gonna like me, there we go. Um, the last slide uh, was uh, mentioning that the book that Paul mentioned at the beginning, The Hidden History, um, which is available after the talk, but I always like to remind people that, I mean, if you can buy the book, that's great. If you can buy it for you and 12 of your friends for Christmas, that's even better. But even if you can't, um, the one thing um, I always encourage people, or for example, if you get it as a gift at some point, and you're like, oh, thank you so much, recycling bin, um, to give it to your local library. Um, I try to give my book, every, I speak at a lot of libraries, um, because the most important thing to me is that young students who are gonna do a book report, you know, a paper, whatever kids have to do in this day and age in K through 12 classrooms, um, that they could freely and easily access this book. Because the beautiful thing about cemeteries is that every single community has a cemetery. Um, here in Virginia, we have tens of thousands of historic African-American cemeteries that have not yet been studied or documented. And it's such a wonderful project and such a great, great way to learn about local history um, that if you, if you find my book in a, like a used book sale, you know, under in a big pile, just grab it out um, and then please give it to your local libraries and I would really appreciate it. And I would be happy to take questions. Clearly, uh, cemeteries are a treasure trove of uh, history. But uh, uh, a comment there, you had mentioned the East End Cemetery, mm -hmm. and there's a lecture next week ah. at the University of Richmond about the work on the East End. And then secondly, if a property owner, somebody buys a property, and it's discovered that there's a cemetery on it, what are the restrictions and the impact on property value on that property owner. Okay, um, so first for that lecture then, please do visit, it's, it's the East End um, a blog on WordPress. I'm sure there's information there about that lecture. So for your second question, um, technically, I mean, there's no one-to-one -one correlation between a cemetery equals minus or plus such, a, such and such a percentage of the worth of the property. I mean, some of us, of course, would see it as a net increase uh, in value. Um, but in terms of restrictions, there are about 12 statutes in the Virginia, Virginian legal statutes that apply to cemeteries. And that's gonna be what would restrict what you can and cannot do. And really the bottom line is that you can't disturb human remains and you can't deface uh, sepulchral architecture. In other words, the gravestones. But the simplest way to say it is that you, you just can't disturb or destroy anything in the cemetery. But it becomes a gray area for example, um, if you have a cemetery on your property and it, there was never a fence, and so you aren't doing anything to it, but again, let's say you have horses or cows, and occasionally they're doing damage. It, it would certainly be a gray area if someone came forward and said, well, this is your fault, you must do something. That I would, I would have to turn over to a lawyer. But the, the general thumb is that you just cannot actively disturb or destroy a cemetery. Otherwise, the, the other side of the coin is, well, what are the restrictions on where to put a cemetery if you want to create a new cemetery? And there, there are very specific restrictions that have to do with how many yards you are away from a water source, your property line, and you have to own at least two acres. But all of these things, if you, in fact, on the website I showed um, for African-American cemeteries, I have a, I just cut and pasted out of the Virginia statutes all the ones that apply to cemeteries and graveyards. Do you have any information about the Holland Park Cemetery in Mechanicsville? 
No, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, was there, is there a particular question you have about, I mean, something you're, a concern you have about it, or? Do you have a similar question? Would you like to know anything about this? I'm sorry, I can't hear. Uh, would you like to know anything just where it's located? Uh, do you know where it's located? Um, so, no, but I can answer that question more broadly. Um, if you are looking for an old cemetery, um, the best places to start um, would be a local historical society or the local courthouse, because at some point, even if it's a very old cemetery, um, in 1917, the Bureau of Vital Statistics is created in Virginia, and at that point, a death certificate is required for each uh, death. And on the death certificate, is a you, you're supposed to uh, indicate the place of burial. Now, unfortunately, the place of burial, someone can write family cemetery, and that's not very helpful. But it is worth a look to try to find the death certificate, um, to uh, ask a local historic society, ask churches in the area, or any institution that's been around for 100 plus years, a Masonic lodge, anything. Um, and then, then you can start looking at old maps, like old top topographic maps will very often show where cemeteries are located. They may not name the cemetery, but yeah. it's a good place to start. Yes, ma'am. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I have been looking at some of the old deeds for farms. Uh, my family has a couple of farms. And um, I've noticed a pattern. I don't know if this is a pattern or, or just something I've noticed. But it seems like in a lot of the cases of the white cemeteries, it's actually in the deed when that family sold that farm to somebody else, that they sold the whole farm except for that little cemetery. Mm -hmm. But if there was a black cemetery on the farm, it never mentions it. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it um, there's no, no rhyme or reason to whether, at, for either a white or a black cemetery, uh, up until recently, it was not legally required to put a cemetery on a deed. So in other words, when you find deeds on cemeteries, um, usually it's because the person who drew up the deed is either the original owner or the person whose cemetery it is. So in other words, they were motivated to indicate where the cemetery was. Today, the laws have changed. So now, for example, any surveyor, if right now VDOT hires a surveyor to survey a couple acres, and if those surveyors see a cemetery, even though they haven't been tasked to map it or find it, they are legally required to indicate the location of that cemetery. But that didn't used to be the case. Um, so on deeds, even in, with white homes and even in places where we know that there's a 200-year-old white cemetery, unfortunately, it, it's kind of a crapshoot whether or not that cemetery is on the deed. Um, and unfortunately today, because now everything is so expensive, even if a well-meaning landowner, if they realize they find a cemetery but it's not on their deed, then the, the, if they want to get it on the deed, they, they do have to pay money to have it resurveyed and put, I mean, in a legal way, to be put onto the deed. Now it is true for black cemeteries in the 19th century, it, it really, everything has to do with access to money, resources. Um, so yes, it is far less likely that, say, an African-American family, unless they're wealthy in 1880, that they, had, they were able to uh, have their land surveyed and paid to get their, the cemetery indicated on the deed. But it's, it's always worth looking at deeds, but of course, conversely, just because you find a deed and if you don't see a cemetery, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, there could be seven cemeteries. The case of that plantation I was talking about in Charlottesville, that one 20th century cemetery, there are actually four other cemeteries that that um, developer, that was on the land that developer bought. Um, two of our slave and two are historic black cemeteries. 
Um, and they didn't know uh, that none of them were on any deed anywhere. There's nothing they could have. They would have had to actually look for it. They couldn't have seen in the deed. Hi. Um, my question is, if you are walking way in the woods, if I'm walking way in the woods and I think I found something pretty remote, is there a repository for this information? Somewhere I can, I some entity I should notify or anything like yes. that? Yes, and I'm so happy to say that the person who is partly responsible for the entity, which is the Department of Historic Resources, is with us. Jolene Smith, who is a professional archaeologist. Um, and so, yes, I mean, the, um, the State uh, Historic Preservation Office, the SHPO, at the Department of Historic Resources, one of the many, many duties um, that our tax dollars are, are supporting and the wonderful things that DHR does. Um, I, and it's not that I can promise, oh, don't worry, Jolene. I, I'm not going to, um, there's one of Jolene and a handful of other archaeologists. So, of course, it's not that DHR can come out to every cemetery and do research and map, but conversely, DHR has a variety of databases that record information about where cemeteries are located. And the other place that you should always reach out to is your local planning department. Because the planning department, anyone, I mean, in terms of the, the most likely risk to a cemetery, someone's gonna build something on it, near it, around it. And anyone who's gonna build something in this day and age is gonna have to get a building permit, and that's gonna go through your planning department. So most planning departments now in Virginia have GIS systems, the geographic information systems, where they keep track of features. And one feature is, of course, cemeteries. So I would contact your planning department and DHR. There's a question. Yeah, I have one question. I have an old family cemetery uh, that is it's basically wooded, and uh, a lot of the headstones are missing. Well, I don't know whether they, I haven't been able to find them. Uh, I thought maybe they'd fall into the grave itself, but we haven't had any luck. What's the best way to try to preserve something like that? I mean, we can get rid of the underbrush. Uh, the trees that are there, they're pretty deeply rooted. Yes, yeah, so three things about that. One is that you're absolutely right, though, that sometimes headstones, because headstones are placed at the edge of the burial shaft itself, sometimes they just fall into the burial shaft. And if that happened, say, 50, 100 years ago, sometimes the decaying leaf litter over the generations, it's actually just underground. So it is worth, I, I tell people, just to get like a metal shish kebab stick. You're nowhere near, I promise you, you're nowhere near the body. You know, your, your feet above any human remains. This is not about bobbing for bodies. Um, it's that if a stone has fallen over, I just like to reassure everyone, we're in the Halloween season and I know people think crazy things. Um, but if the stone's fallen over and it's just below the surface, it'd be well worth it if you could find it because maybe it's inscribed. Um, so that's the first thing to do. The second thing is there's no easy answer for how to mark an unmarked burial. And as much as I hate to say it, one of the most long lasting things you could do is uh, like a tall plastic cross, because plastic is gonna last for a really long time, or, or I should say one of the longest lasting affordable things to do. Um, because of course the, the, the luxury model here would be if you paid for new granite stones to place them at the head, and you may or may not know who's buried where, so you may not be able to have names, but maybe you could put the family name and say, you know, a, an ancestor of the family um, to indicate that they're buried there. But it, as I'm sure most of you realize, it gets very expensive. And I specifically, granite is what you would want to go for, not marble, not field stones or 
because those aren't going to last very long. So those would be some of your options, but there, there's no one easy way other than either a granite marker or some sort of a plastic marker that, that will be sturdy and last for a long time to mark where those, where those burials are. 